Thank you, Alex. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Acts chapter 19. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's one in the pew in front of you, or the passage is also printed in the bulletin. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, we're making our way through the book of Acts, and we've made our way to Acts chapter 19, where Paul comes back to Ephesus. We've seen This theme play out over and over again, week in and week out, God is on a mission, and so we'll continue to look at that theme this morning. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, and it happened while Paul, that while while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the Holy Spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Scripture says of itself that the grass withers, the flower fades, that the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and teaching of his word. Father in heaven, we bow before you and thank you for the privilege again to worship, privilege to sing praises, privilege to pray. Now we come to hear your word preached and proclaimed. I pray that you would guard my mouth to speak only what is in line with your truth. I pray, Heavenly Father, for your people here gathered together, coming with different uh, situations in their lives, different struggles, different hurts, different joys. I pray that wherever they may be this morning, that you would be 
please to meet with us. Open our hearts by the Spirit to see Jesus Christ crucified, risen, exalted, reigning, interceding for us now. We pray in His name. Amen. Prevail. Prevail is a different word. It's not a word that we use very often. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines prevail this way, to gain ascendancy through strength or superiority. So it's not just about winning, it's about rising to ascendance. So when we think about the word prevail, we think about a journey, we think about a climb. It often includes overcoming obstacles, building something from the ground up. We can think of rags to riches story against all odds. And so Acts 19.20 summarizes the work of the Lord in Ephesus in this way, that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now humanly speaking, Christianity in Ephesus would have been a very hard sell. There were several strikes against Christianity in the city of Ephesus. First of all, it was a Roman provincial capital and the worship, the cult worship of Caesar was celebrated in Ephesus. Number two, strike two, Artemis. Artemis and the worship of Artemis and a statue of Artemis and her temple were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens Artemis was a fertility goddess, and her worship included immorality and prostitution in the name of religion. Strike three, there was a black arts witchcraft reality in this city that thrived around the the worship of Artemis. If you couldn't have children, we'll just do these things and we'll practice these incantations and you'll be able to have children. Plenty of hurdles against a Jewish rabbi crucified on a Roman cross who allegedly came to save the world. But what do we see? We see the kingdom of God, the word of the Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ prevailed mightily. And here's what I want us to remember this morning, that God is on a prevailing mission. God is on a prevailing mission and It doesn't mean that everything will be roses all the time and there will never be challenges, but it does mean that God is still working in this world and He's prevailing and the gospel of Jesus Christ is still the answer. Have you ever wondered deep down, maybe you don't say it out loud, but wondered deep down if the hurdles and odds against Christianity now are just too great? I mean, culturally, socially, demographically, does the message of the cross still matter? Brothers and sisters, God is still on a prevailing mission. And we need this reminder when we are surrounded by competing worldviews and cultural shifts and temptations from the world, the flesh, and the devil that lure us into believing that God's mission is no longer effective. It may have worked back then, but now it it just isn't enough. Can't you picture Jesus reminding us, you know I made the world, right? 
You know, I'm holding up the world. Every breath you take now depends on my power. Can't we hear him saying, you know I rose from the dead. God is on a prevailing mission. And if the gospel of Jesus Christ was effective in Ephesus in the first century. The gospel of Jesus Christ can be effective in our lives. If the gospel played in Ephesus, a pagan place, the gospel can play in our lives and in our world today. And so let's think through some of the details of God's prevailing mission in Ephesus. First of all, it's a mission of persuasion. We see that in verses 1 through 8. And 1 through 10. Verse 8 summarizes Paul's ministry in Ephesus. It says that he spoke boldly in the synagogue, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And part of God's mission is persuading and pleading and defending, making a case for the reality and beauty of Christianity. Persuading people that Jesus is the Christ, that he offers deliverance from our sins by His perfect life and sacrificial death for us. God's prevailing mission is, is, a, is a mission that's it's not based on snake oil. It's not a fake Ponzi scheme. God's prevailing mission of persuasion is based on reality. What are some of the things we see here? Well, we begin the passage while with Paul interacting with some disciples of John. Apollos has gone to Corinth, and Paul made his way across the land back to Ephesus, encouraging churches along the way. And when he gets to Ephesus, he finds some people that at first glance seem to be followers of Jesus. They seem to be disciples of Christ. But there are several indicators from the text that show us that they had not yet believed in Jesus. They were disciples of John. And you remember John the Baptist's message, right? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the message of return to the Lord. God is sending His messenger. Get ready. He's almost here. So these disciples weren't wrong. They just didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah, that He'd already come, that He already died, that he already rose again from the dead, that he already gained the victory. They got some of the message, but they missed the heart of the message. And there are two clues to this from the passage. First of all, they misunderstood the Holy Spirit. Most commentators believe that they weren't saying we've never even heard of a Holy Spirit because John preached about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is seen in the Old Testament. Well, what this expression means is Wait, people have been baptized in the Holy Spirit? People can uh, experience personal, powerful connection with God through the Holy Spirit? That's a thing? We can do that? Well, sign us up. And Paul goes deeper with diagnostic questions. And he starts with a misunderstanding about the Spirit, and he moves to a misunderstanding about Jesus. He said, what baptism were you baptized into? And they said, into the baptism of John. They didn't know about Trinitarian baptism. Why? Because they didn't know about Jesus. They hadn't heard about being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They just didn't know. They were waiting. They were ready. 
And God's prevailing mission was about to take root in their lives. And this message is about Jesus. We know that, right? Essentially, Paul says, what you know is good. You're on the right track, but I've got great news for you. It's about Jesus. And it's fair for us to believe that Paul took some time to explain to them how Jesus is the promised one, the Messiah that they had been waiting for. He may have told them about Jesus' unique birth, His perfect life, His sacrificial death, His miracles, His ministry, His His glorious resurrection his ascension into heaven the great commission the holy spirit being poured out at pentecost and how the gospel was turning the world upside down and they were ready for that message and they believed and they were baptized and paul prayed for them and the holy spirit was poured out on them an act that's connected to their conversion a replay An aftershock, if you will, of what happened at Pentecost. That's exactly what took place at Pentecost. It's what happened with uh, Cornelius at Caesarea in Philippi. The, The Spirit was poured out when they received the Gospel. And it's a picture that the Gospel is going to the nations. God is on a prevailing mission of persuasion. That's what Paul does here with these Uh, disciples of John they're converted and as we see the story unfold we remember this reality that some will believe and some won't from the passage he turns from these disciples of John who come to Christ to the synagogue and he goes there as was his pattern he he preached his guts out he poured out his heart to them for three months he boldly proclaimed He reasoned with them. He persuaded them. And some believed, but the passage also says in verse 9, some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's the way of Jesus, the gospel, before the whole congregation. And this is one of the realities. It does not mean that God's mission has failed. God's still on a prevailing mission of persuasion, but some will believe and some won't God's gospel is going to every tribe and tongue and nation and kindred but every person in each of those places has not been effectually called by grace and so he spends two years preaching in the hall of Tyrannus and what is the result it says in verse 10 that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. People from every corner of this area in the world heard the good news of the gospel. As we think about God's prevailing mission of persuasion, what does that mean for us? Well, we have an incredible privilege like Paul to share and persuade and speak to others the good news of Jesus Christ. And we remember this, some already know part of the story, but they're misguided or they misunderstand what Christianity is all about. Think about all the people in our community that you rub shoulders with who know something about Christianity. They have an inclination about Christ, but they don't know the power of the gospel. 
They may go to church, they may consider themselves Christians, but deep down they miss the fundamental message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we've heard people say things like this before. I'm a pretty good person. I've never done anything really bad. As long as the good outweighs the bad in my life, I should be fine, right? Just follow the rules. That's what Christianity is all about. No. No, that's not what it's all about. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ and His perfect life and His sacrificial death for us to cover our sins. It's not about us being good enough. We need salvation from outside of ourselves and we receive it as an absolute free gift. And some will believe and some won't believe. We should learn, we must learn how to share the gospel and how the gospel intersects with our lives and other people's lives. And we, we sharpen our tools for defending the faith. But ultimately, we take courage in God's prevailing mission of persuasion, not because we are incredible apologists. We know how to tell people about the gospel in, in, in a perfect way. We take courage because it's God's work. It's God's mission. And He's ultimately the one that is working. So that gives us a strength to tell our children, whether they're 2 years old or 32 years old, about the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And it enables us to go to our atheist neighbor to talk about what Jesus Christ has done for us. To go to our friends who are walking through suffering. To go to our uncle who has abandoned the Christian faith. Because God is working. He will be glorified. God's on a prevailing mission of persuasion. He's also on a prevailing mission where He even uses posers. You guys know what the word poser means, right? It means faker. It means pretender. From my skateboarding days in the late 80s, um, these were the harshest words you could use uh, for another skateboarder. He's a poser. He has his Tony Hawk skateboard and his Vision Street wear and his van shirt, but he can't even ollie. What a poser. Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20 highlight the reality and the difference between phonies and the real deal. God's on a mission of a prevailing mission, even through posers even through fakes and what we see first of all is the real deal fakes are revealed so many times in the presence of the real thing and so in verse 11 and 12 we see jesus power through paul look what it says in verse 11 god was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Just to be clear, the miraculous things that were being done by Paul, even things that touched his skin, being able to cast out demons or heal the sick, those were not about Paul. Same thing happened with Peter. People said, Maybe his shadow will fall on us and we will be saved. The same thing was true of Jesus. If I only touch the hem of his garment, I can be healed. All of those things are not about Peter or Paul. They're about Jesus Christ and Jesus' power. 
And Jesus' power is expressed to the Ephesians. Think about this. Ephesus was a religious, spiritual city. I already mentioned this. It was a city overshadowed by um, Artemis, a fertility goddess, and worshiping her meant going into the temple prostitutes. It was a place where the cultural, religious worship of Caesar was celebrated alive and well. It was a place where black arts were practiced. And these aren't uh, things that are innocent. They were dark, demonic, satanic practices. That sets the stage for God's work through Paul in miraculous and extraordinary ways to establish and confirm God's prevailing mission. The power of Jesus shines even, especially in this place where false and pagan worship thrived. And the message is clear. Jesus trumps Artemis. Jesus trumps Caesar. Jesus trumps sensuality and possessions and witchcraft and Satan himself. And this is the same thing that we see in the Exodus in the Old Testament. Remember with the plagues? Each one of the plagues was a declaration, an attack by God on one of the gods or some of the gods of the Egyptians where he was essentially saying, I am king. God is powerful and mighty to save And Jesus' power is still at work here in our world. We no longer believe individuals or their garments have the power to heal, but make no mistake, God is able to do extraordinary things. And we've all heard of situations where He healed someone and doctors couldn't explain how or why it happened. We still believe that God is working in people's lives He's changing us. He's helping us fight sin and struggles and addictions that we had wrestled with for years we thought could never, ever change. He's healing emotional and spiritual scars that we thought we could never be whole. God is bringing people out of darkness and bondage and slavery into the family of God, into the fellowship of the church. Part of God's prevailing mission is is that posers and fakes actually point to the real deal, Jesus Christ. And that's what we see goes on here. The posers are exposed. There are, verse 13, some itinerant Jewish exorcists. They would take their show on the road for money. They would try to exorcise demons. And so they decided, you know what, we'll add Jesus Christ to our toolkit. So they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, seven sons of Sceva. And to say that this plan uh, backfired would be an understatement. The Spirit answered, the Holy Spirit, uh, not the Holy Spirit, excuse me, the demon-possessed man answered in this way, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And through demonic power, He overwhelmed these men. He jumped all seven of them. He beat the fire out of them. They ran out of the house naked, running for their lives, happy to be alive. See, they used Jesus' name, but they didn't know Jesus. And we know this, that 
Jesus is not a rabbit's foot that we rub for good luck. He's not a magical incantation to say over someone or something at just the right time. There's power in the name of Jesus, but that power is connected to being known by Jesus and knowing Jesus. And what happened after this episode? Word travels fast. Verse 17 This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. We don't usually think of people being scared as an entry point for the kingdom of God, but that's exactly what happened here. There was awe and wonder and heaviness, and people were confronted with the fact that you can't play games with God. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And these pretenders unintentionally pointed people to the Lord of glory, to Jesus Christ. God is on a prevailing mission even through posers. He's on a prevailing mission through repentance as well. That's the last thing I want us to see this morning. Here's a nagging question that I bet a lot of you have asked before in your life. What if I'm a poser What if I'm a fake? What if my profession of Christianity and my relationship with Him is not really legitimate? Dear ones, one of the indelible marks and indicators that we are the children of God is not that you have your life together and not that everything's going awesome, but it's that you live a life of repentance. There are several things that stand out here. First of all, Honest repentance. Verse 18 tells us that many who were these new believers, they came, converted, confessing their sins, divulging their practices. Where did they come? Well, they came to the church. They came to the people of God. And they honestly admitted where their practices and they confessed their sins. Jacob alluded to this in the confession this morning. Being loved by God accepted by Jesus Christ, gives us the freedom to be honest with Him and others. And it doesn't mean that it'll be easy, or everything will be wrapped up with a bow when we are honest with God and others. There will probably be consequences. It doesn't mean everything we should tell everyone, everything, all the time. But we are called to live open and honest lives before God. So, as we think about this, One question that comes to the surface is this. Are there secrets in your life? Are there areas where you sneak and slink and hide from others? I've been there before. It is exhausting and humiliating and dehumanizing. These are the areas in your life that you need to give immediate attention to imagine going into the emergency room and having cardiac arrest and keep it you keep trying to tell the doctor my ingrown toe is killing me my own ingrown toenail is killing me we need to address that like no we have to make sure your heart is working so if there are areas where you're keeping secrets uh, what we see here is an example of Honest confession and repentance. Where is Jesus calling you to courageous, rigorous honesty with Him 
and others. There's also concrete repentance. These new believers in Jesus know that their old way doesn't match up with the kingdom of God. This whole thing with the seven sons of Sceva shook them. We can't play games with God. He knows everything about us. And so what did they do? They brought their books, their books of witchcraft, their books of magic arts to be burned. Now look, I know that book burnings don't elicit the the best thoughts in our minds, right? We think of Fahrenheit 451, we think about Nazi Germany, but this was an act of concrete repentance. Whether you've been a Christian for months or for decades, Jesus frees us to practice concrete repentance. And maybe you're not holding on to the sin per se, but you don't want to tear up the road or blow up the bridge that leads back to that sin. And so, you know what, I don't need to have any accountability on the internet because I've been doing great for a long time. Or um, maybe it's the contact information of that one person from your past that you have no business ever talking to again. There are so many examples, we don't need to mention them all. Where is God calling you to concrete repentance? It's also costly. A piece of silver was the daily wage for laborers in the first century. So the the books were uh, estimated to be worth about 50,000 pieces of silver. Commentators say that that's probably somewhere north of $6 million worth of things uh, in our current economy. What we do with our possessions, what we do with our belongings, it matters. It's actually deeply spiritual. And, and we can all picture this scenario. We won't use the scrolls anymore, God, but if we sold them, think of all the money we could get. We could give money to you, Lord. That's not what they did. They got rid of them in the same manner that the woman in Luke 7 did. You remember her? She came into the dinner party. She busted up this dinner party. She washed Jesus' feet with her tears, with her hair, and she broke her alabaster flask of perfume and washed His feet with it. She was a prostitute. That was her tool of the trade. It was a declaration of repentance there's no turning back jesus i am with you sometimes repentance is costly but it's worth it sometimes it means uh, ending a relationship that feels so good but isn't honoring to god sometimes it means separating ourselves from people or friends that lead us in a way that isn't healthy sometimes The cost is financial, learning how to tithe, learning how to give generously. Maybe it's standing up to your boss when you realize you have this dream job, but they want me to cheat and cook the books. And so it means being fired or having to give up the job. What are ways or areas in your life where you are being called to costly repentance? Last thing I want us to see as we close is to think about how God's mission god's word is prevailing in believers and unbelievers think about how god's word comforts encourages empowers convicts motivates 
Think about his prevailing mission as he shapes and molds us into the image of God and how we're learning more and more that it is worth it to follow Jesus. Is this a story of your life? Following Jesus Christ is worth it. But all those things we're so afraid of, trusting him with, he has proven himself over and over again. He's on a prevailing, a prevailing mission with his children. And God's also on a prevailing mission, not only in growth and believers, but in and through conversion in calling people to himself. Some of us think, you know, I have to have everything together in my life before I can tell someone about Jesus. I've got to have everything squared away. But what if honesty and confession, concrete and costly repentance were some of the most powerful tools that Jesus uses call people to himself that's what happened in my life a 15 year old teenager at camp uh, ready to have fun didn't really care about Jesus I just wanted to get to the beach and a friend demonstrated to me what repentance is and what confession is and I was so baffled and confronted and confused by sincere gospel repentance in another person, that the Lord used that to prevail upon me in saving me with His grace. Brothers and sisters, God is on a mission, a prevailing mission in and through us. Let's move forward with Him in faith. Let's pray. Again, God, we thank you for your word and for how it speaks powerfully into our hearts. I pray that you would give us the grace to repent and trust in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.